What happens when life sort of becomes too hard? Like, what do you do in those seasons when life just seems to be filled with failure after failure, hurdle after hurdle, punch after punch? What do you do when life just isn't the way that it was anymore? Like, you know, those moments in life when you realize that what felt like the good old days are just never coming back and your outlook forward seems just so bleak. The punches don't just keep coming. It seems like there's just no scenario where they will ever stop. And you feel tired and you feel weak and you feel like you just want to throw in the towel and give up. What do you do? This is what we walk into tonight. We walk into a group that is discouraged and depleted. We walk into a group that looks back on a legacy that was once glorious, but the future seems uncertain. In fact, the return to that glory seems, quite frankly, impossible. The Israelites once had a nation that was delivered to them by God. You remember, they were slaves, and that God delivered them out of it by splitting a massive sea for them to escape. You remember that the settlement was established by an understaffed army led by an untrained general in Joshua, defeating kingdom after kingdom because of the hand of God and only because of the hand of God. You remember that the borders further expanded through the reign of King David, a shepherd. He establishes the capital city of Jerusalem. And you remember that it prospered and got bigger and the city got taller through Solomon, his son that the glory of God descended upon the first temple in front of all the people. But because of generations of rebellion, God allows their enemies to destroy the walls of Jerusalem. He lets the enemies crush his own temple. He lets the enemies, the Babylonians, rip out the Israelites from their homes and throw them into exile. And now the rubble that's left in the city is really just a physical metaphor for the decay of their spiritual state as a nation. It's an apt depiction of what their relationship with God has now become. Fade in, fade out, and a new empire reigns. And this new king, King Cyrus, allows the exiles to go back home. And when they finally arrive, decades after being kicked out of their own homes, there are foreigners that are living there. The buildings are left in ruins. They are simply reminded of God's judgment against them. What a homecoming. Ezra chapter 2 tells us that this first remnant consisted of 42,360 Israelites, which is a far cry from what they once were. Among this 42,360 was a young man named Zechariah, the author of this book that we're exploring today. Zechariah, his life, his ministry, we don't know much about. His name is a common name in the Bible. There is Zechariah, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. There is Zechariah, the son of the high priest. There is Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, Jesus' uncle. There are a bunch of other Zechariahs. There's just a lot of Zechariahs in the Bible. The name itself means the Lord remembers. And as you know, by now, the names of the minor prophets matter in the context of their respective books. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. The Yah in Zechariah refers to Yahweh or Jehovah God. So you got hallelujah meaning praise be to God and Zechariah meaning the Lord remembers. So that's your Hebrew lesson from a Korean guy who never went to seminary. Okay. (laughs) Moving on. 
moving on. We also know that Zechariah was from a priestly family. He, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, was both a prophet and a priest. We also know, because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 23, that Zechariah was killed by the Sanhedrin in the temple. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. And there are no conflicts that we know of for a certain. But all we know is that Jesus refers to this awful and heinous crime and that God has not forgotten it, that God remembers and that God will repay. The book of Zechariah is the longest book out of the Minor Prophets. It spans 14 chapters, like Hosea, and is jam-packed to the brim with information regarding the Messiah and his ministry to come. Like pound for pound, save for the book of Isaiah, no other Old Testament book comes as close to talking about the Messiah as Zechariah does. So we should be excited. But like its author, the book of Zechariah is a very difficult book to understand. Your favorite scholars and preachers, both contemporary and dead, all have their own interpretations on this book. To paraphrase Ed Moore, if you ask five scholars about this book, you'll receive seven interpretations back. Martin Luther, the Martin Luther, wrote two separate commentaries on Zechariah. The first one, he doesn't even write a commentary for chapter 14. He writes chapters 1 to 13, writes a commentary for it, doesn't even acknowledge the existence of chapter 14. In the second version, the only comments he adds for chapter 14 is, quote, here in this chapter, I give up. <laughs> for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. End quote, and I am not kidding. Still, tonight, we're going to try to stick to what we know. We won't try to brute force anything, and Lord willing, we will break down Zechariah while trying to remain as faithful to the text as possible. And to do that, we need to ask the Lord for help. So please pray with me. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we are but a simple people, Lord, but you are a God who is infinite, and yet you want us to know you. Lord, you are a God who has taken his hand down and even come down himself in human form to be with us and to change the course of human history just so that we might be reconciled to you. And so tonight, Lord, would you use me, this poor stammering tongue, Lord, to open the door to Christ. Lord, would people see you and you only. Lord, would people see you and how glorious you are, how magnificent you are, but yet how gentle and compassionate and merciful you are. And so we ask you for your help, your Holy Spirit, to illuminate our hearts this evening. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to do tonight is to first familiarize ourselves with the general sections of the book and then dive into what I think are four prevailing themes that run throughout the sections of this book. And like I said, there's a lot of debate around this book, not just the themes, but even the structure of the book. But generally, the book of Zechariah can be broken in, up into at least three main parts. And we're going to try to remember that by rhyming them, sort of. The visions of Zechariah the sermons of Zechariah, the burdens of Zechariah. The visions, the sermons, the burdens. So for the first section, the visions. This section is probably the most well-known section of the book of Zechariah. These are the eight funky night visions that Zechariah has in one night. And at first glance, the visions might seem random. Like, you know those nights where you have a bunch of different random dreams and it's sort of restless? It feels like that. But if you look a little bit more closely, the visions are actually pretty well-structured. 
And what I mean by that is that it follows a symmetrical order called a chiasm, which is common in Hebrew literature. Some of you might be familiar with it, where the themes run in symmetrical order. The ideas run in symmetrical order. <clears throat> Here, the visions start pretty wide in focus and scope, and then they get narrower and narrower. The first and the last visions focus on a global perspective. It focuses on God's rule over the entire world. The second and seventh visions move more inwardly, focusing primarily on the land of Judah. And God focuses on driving out the enemies of Judah out of the land. The third and the sixth visions get even more narrow by focusing on a city within Judah, which is the capital city of Jerusalem. Yes, Specifically, the visions start in the city of Jerusalem, but expand and focus on the establishment of a new Jerusalem, or Zion, the city of God's kingdom. And finally, the fourth and fifth visions focus on a single person. They are the messianic prototypes that essentially establish Israel's new future. Specifically, the fourth vision focuses on establishing Joshua as a high priest and being made clean as a spiritual representative of the nation. The fifth vision focuses on Zerubbabel as the leader king, who is a descendant of King David, that will oversee the completion of the second temple. And they are both prototypes of the Messiah to come. And we'll get into that a little bit later. In the second section, the sermons, the first section was the visions, the sermons, we see God speaking to Zechariah to preach to the Jews. This takes place about two years after the first section, after the night visions, two years sermons. And there, there are two messages here, and they are structured as well. The first sermon talks about what God had done in the past. He goes through the disobedience of the people, how rebellious they were, and how stubborn they were to repent and turn back to God. And then God explains what he did as a result of that disobedience, his discipline against Israel. The second sermon doesn't look to the past like the first sermon does, but looks to the future. It includes promises of what the new Jerusalem will look like. God paints a picture of a new city and a new people across borders from all over the world that will reign in the city of God. And this becomes a real promise to the people of Israel. The third and final section is what we know to be the burdens of Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 1 introduces the first one. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, it introduces the second burden, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So we see specifically two burdens given to Zechariah to proclaim to the people of God. The term burden is simply the technical term for a prophecy or an oracle specifically around judgment. But here it's made specific. The first burden is revealed in chapters 9 through 11, and the second burden is revealed in chapters 12 through 14. Both burdens discuss the enemies of Israel that need to be dealt with. The burdens promise that nations will rise against Jerusalem. Enemies will be lifted up against it, and there will be war. But both burdens also describe judgment against those very nations. They promise a deliverance from those nations by God, that God will defeat these nations and his city will prevail against them. Both burdens also discuss the coming of the Messiah, whereas the first two sections, the visions and the sermons, alluded to the Messiah, this final section is much more explicit about the Messiah. For example, both burdens discuss the humility of the Messiah, both burdens discuss the rejection of the Messiah, 
And both burdens also reveal that the Lord will save his people through the Messiah. The first burden, however, is mainly focused around the first coming of Christ, his earthly ministry. And the second burden focuses mainly on the second and final coming of Jesus. So those are the three sections of Zechariah, if you were able to follow. The visions found in chapters 1 through 6, the sermons found in chapters 7 and 8, and the burdens found in chapters 9 through 14. And from here, these three sections, here we see generally four prevailing themes woven throughout. We're going to alliterate this one, the repentance, the remembering, the redemption, the rest. The repentance, the remembering, the redemption, and the rest. First, the repentance. Remember, the remnant comes back. And I want you to just imagine getting there to Jerusalem, the city that thrives, no longer exists. The temple of God, Solomon's palace, they're just ruins now. It's a tragic sight. But they roll up their sleeves and they get to work. They get to rebuilding the temple. They hit the restart button. But as soon as they start rebuilding, there are instantly obstacles in the way. The locals interfere and try to stop the project. And they get discouraged again. And they stop. And in order to get his people back on track, God sets the tone for the reboot. He reminds the people what led them to their situation in the first place and then tells them to restart by first repenting. Starting from chapter 1, verse 2, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore I say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, Jerusalem, and I will return to you. And here we see the graciousness of God. Right? Everything starts at repentance. It starts at zero. It starts at turning away from your sins and returning to God. It doesn't start at a negative where you have to work your way to get a chance in God, to be in God's grace. No, God accepts all those who repent and turn to him. And this connects directly with our next section in the sermons. The first sermon in this section is prompted by a question on fasting. So a little background. In the Old Testament, God only institutes one fast, a fast during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. In Leviticus chapter 23, God calls the people to afflict themselves, which means to fast. But since then, the people instituted several other fasts, one of which mourned the destruction of the first temple. And remember, the sermons come up, the sermons come about two years after the night visions, which means the temple is almost completed. And as the anniversary approaches, the people ask Zechariah, hey, do we have to fast now that we have this new temple? Do we still have to fast and mourn about the old temple? And God answers this question by addressing the root of that question. Because the question isn't about whether or not one should fast. The question is really a question of worship. Chapter 7, verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? It's a hard issue. Why are you asking me for permission on, on whether to fast if this fast wasn't for me in the first place? This is a call for true worship, for the people of Israel to reorient themselves, not with the traditions, but with the heart of God, to consider their motives. Again, God accepts all those who repent and turn to him, as long as their heart is pure, as long as it isn't to make, them feel, make themselves feel better, as long as it isn't for show, as long as it is to have God and God himself, God will accept, return to him 
not their traditions. Return to him, and he will return to you. And this goes for us tonight, right? Wednesday night worship, Sunday mornings, church night, or any other activity that the church hosts and throughout the week. Was it for him you came in the first place? Or was it for the people? Or was it to make yourselves feel better? Or was it for your children to have instilled or indoctrinated in them good values? Who are you coming for? And what is your thrust? What is the main motivation that you come to church? Again, in the final section, the burdens. The burdens. In the burdens, we see the result of this call to repentance. Chapter 13, verse 9. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This is a promise of the gift of repentance, that God will grant them repentance and that the result of that very repentance is stated as well. And in it, there's an unmistakable sense of finality to it where God will be united with his people and he will be their God forevermore. So that's the first theme, repentance. The second theme is the remembering. The remembering. If you would recall the meaning of Zechariah's name, the Lord remembers. And throughout the book, the Lord makes sure that his people know that he remembers. And this is important as a theme of the book because the people are, again, they're discouraged. They are part of a reboot that seems like there is no future for them that God's glory is gone forever. But God wants to remind them that he's not forgotten them, that he remembers them. The very first vision that Zechariah has reflects how the people of God feel about their current state of events. In the vision, there are several horsemen that patrol the earth. They represent the omniscience and omnipresence of God. And what they report back is found in chapter 1, verse 11. We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Sounds good, until you remember God's people are suffering. They are not at rest. They are suffering. But the enemies of God, those who are not God's people, live in their wickedness, live in rejecting God, live in their rejection of God's people. And they're enjoying their day-to-day as if all is well. This is not the natural order that God's ordained. This is what the people see. For the people of God to suffer while the rest of the earth remains at rest is counter to what God has promised. And so in response to this report of the earth being at rest, there's a character, the angel of the Lord, presumably the pre-incarnate Christ, asks God the Father in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years of exile? Then God answers in verse 14, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous of Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. Verse 17, my cities again shall overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. God acknowledges that his enemies are at rest, that they're okay, that they don't have a worry in the world against the judgment of God. But God also acknowledges that he will have vengeance, that he will remember his people and build his house again. These are comforting words to the remnant who has returned to the ashes in Jerusalem. 
And these comforting words are echoed in the second section of the book as well. Very much so in the sermon section, chapter 8, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. Sound familiar? It's very parallel. It's a big comfort to know that God has not forgotten his people. Finally, in the third section, the burdens, we read about God destroying the nations that wage war against his own people. And after their destruction, God acknowledged the suffering his people had to endure. Chapter 9, verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. I have not forgotten my people. The next verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Verse 11, God leans on his promises. He presses in on his promises. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. My people, my people, I remember you. I hear you and I have not forgotten you. Chapter 14, verse 9. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. In a time when the people are discouraged, when they've been defeated for decades, they are encouraged by God's remembering them. And sometimes in the darkness, sometimes when you are downcast, it just might not seem like it. But God remembers his people. And Zechariah knew this partially. The Jews knew this partially. But we in this room have a greater picture of this. And those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are intimate with the gospel, know this more than the audience of this book that it was written for. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Be encouraged, Christian. God remembers you. Theme number two, the remembering. On to theme number three, the redemption. The redemption. It's no secret that reboots and sequels are awful. You have some exceptions, but the general rule of thumb is that reboots stink. But God wants the Israelites to know that this reboot will be worth it. And for this reboot to be worth it, God needs to redeem Israel himself. There needs to be a true redemption that takes place. John Calvin said of Zechariah, quote, It was necessary to give the people the hope of pardon and reconciliation that they might look forward with confidence, end quote. And this theme is woven clearly throughout the book. In the first section, the fourth vision refers to the redemption of Israel clearly. Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord. Again, presumably, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. But Joshua is wearing filthy, soiled clothes, like soiled. This represents the many, many sins of Israel. And Satan is actually present in this vision, accusing Joshua, who represents God's people. But instead of agreeing with Satan, the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan. He shuts Satan up. And then the angel of the Lord does three things. First, 
the angel of the Lord declares that God has plucked Jerusalem from destruction. Chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Second, the angel of the Lord declares the clothes to be removed. Because Joshua can't remove it himself, right? Israel cannot cleanse itself from its own sins. Chapter 3, verse 4. The angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, Joshua, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Which leads us to the third action that happens. Joshua isn't left naked, but he is clothed with pure linens. Chapter 3, verse 4. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Israel needed to be made clean to be called God's people again. But because Israel could not clean itself, God declares its slate clean. This is redemption. And this is also fulfilled in the gospel. Israel was guilty of their sin. But Joshua took its place and wore the sin of Israel on his shoulders. You are guilty of your sin against God. The consequence of your sins against a holy and eternal God is eternal punishment and wrath. But Jesus, who never committed a single sin, took your place and wore every single one of your sins. Every action and every thought you even committed on that cross. On that cross, in that moment, Jesus hung just as guilty as you, just as guilty as the worst murderer, just as guilty as the worst of sinners. Joshua stood accused by Satan. Jesus was mocked and accused for our sake. Joshua doesn't face the wrath that Israel deserved for its sin, but Jesus took on the full wrath of God against the sins that he carried with him on that cross. Every dark, every wretched, every vile, every evil sin you and I have ever even conceived of was paid for by Jesus on that cross. And like Joshua, because Jesus died the death that you were supposed to die for your sin, you were declared clean. Your sins were not just removed, but you were declared pure and clean and worthy to stand in the presence of God. So that those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Jesus Christ took off his record and clothed you. This is what it means to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The earthly redemption that was available for Israel is eternally available for you today. God repeats this in the sermons where he promises to save them. Chapter 8, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And again, chapter 8, verse 13. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Jerusalem, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Furthermore, God doesn't just declare that he will redeem them. He says that he will delight in redeeming them. Chapter 8, verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? The theme of redemption is even louder in our third section, the burdens. Chapter 9, verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. God does not just plan to redeem back to the original. 
this reboot will lead to an even greater redemption. Chapter 9, verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Chapter 10, verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. It's a full redemptive plan for the nation of Israel. And there's tons more, but just one more example here. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And the following, immediately following these verses, the verse discusses a full termination of all the idols that his people have worshiped and followed. It's a complete cleansing that not only ensures the people will be cleansed from their sins of idolatry, which is what necessitated our need for a savior in the first place, but it also ensures that the people will never go back to their idols ever again. It's even greater than just a new slate. It's a full redemption for the people of God. So from themes one through three, repentance, remembering, and redemption, God not only comforts his people, but plans to fully restore them to an even greater glory. We see God moving very actively through these themes, do we not? Yet Israel does nothing. And God settles these themes with our final theme for tonight, rest. Rest for God and rest for God's people. In the vision with Joshua and his clothes that we just discussed, God finishes the vision by declaring that sin will be removed completely. Sin will be done with and encourages the people of Israel to look forward to a final day of rest, which he promises. Chapter 3, verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is peace talk. David was a war king while Solomon was a peace king. And in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, it uses similar language to describe the peaceful period of Solomon's reign. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. The sentiment of the eradication of sin bringing permanent peace on earth has also been mentioned in Micah chapter 4. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. We also can look at the final vision for the theme of rest in this first section of visions. Remember the first vision where the horsemen go out to patrol the earth and they report back that the enemies of God are at rest, but God promises justice. God promises that they will be destroyed. The final vision in chapter six, which is parallel to our first vision, remember the chiasm, it again has patrolmen in the form of chariots. It's in chapter six. These four chariots go out to execute judgment of God and then patrol the earth. But instead of God promising to deal with the enemies, the enemies have been dealt with. The first vision has been fulfilled. And because the enemies of God have been dealt with, there's finality to these visions in chapter 6, verse 8. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest 
in the North Country. The North Country refers to the former home of his enemies. Former because they've been dealt with. There's a final defeat of the enemies of God. They've been completely and utterly destroyed. And now the Spirit of God can rest, not just in Zion, but even in enemy territory or the former enemy territory. We move on to the sermon section. Here we see the theme of rest played out in the people of God. Chapter 8, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. No more are people dying prematurely from hardship and slavery. No more are God's people subject to forced labor. They can sit down in peace and rest. We continue in the next verse, chapter 8, verse 5. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. The oppression and suffering that the Jews face under captivity will be no more. They can look to a beautiful time of peace when a normal day is simply old men and old women sitting down, canes in hand, watching the next generation of children playing in the streets, never knowing oppression. This is rest. In the final section, the section of the burdens, we see rest, the theme of rest, round out the entirety of the book of Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, this scene from uh, Palm Sunday, the week before his crucifixion, when he enters Jerusalem and people are praising him. Chapter 9, verse 10, the next verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This peace is fulfilled in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evils against the people of God are disarmed by the things that we are not capable of beating ourselves. Paul explains this more clearly in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We continue, chapter 12, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. God will rule because he has defeated and conquered all of his enemies forever and ever. There will be everlasting peace and God will finally, rightfully be king over all the earth. Verse 11, and it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. There will be no need for decree of utter destruction because there will be no more sin. And because there is no more sin, because there is no more idolatry, because all the enemies of God have been completely wiped, his city can live, his city can rest in security forever. A couple of items as we close out. Remember in chapter 3, in the vision, Joshua, the high priest, is being accused by Satan. Satan accuses you. That's what he does. His name means, Satan means the accuser. Satan reminds you of your filth, reminds you of your sinfulness. 
He reminds you of your unworthiness before God. And if you have not cried out to God to save you through the work of Jesus Christ, then cry out with every fiber of your being to your creator, your maker, and judge to save you from the judgment of your own sin. Because Satan's accusations are correct. But if you have cried out and Christ is yours, then remember that you are Christ's and Satan's accusations are wrong. Chapter 14, verse 20 talks about the final day when we will finally know peace. It talks about how every single thing will be made holy. Every single thing. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. Even the pots and the pans will be holy. We began the sermon with Jerusalem in ruins. We began this book with Jerusalem weak and defeated. But through this cleansing work of the Messiah, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his kingship and rule, every single square inch has been made holy. For you, individuals, it's talking about Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Satan accuses you, but if you are in Christ, he is wrong. It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, We are not chosen with the possibility of holiness, but to the realization of holiness. God has not chosen us before the foundation of the world in order to create us for the possibility of holiness. He has chosen us to holiness. It is what he has purposed for us, not possibility, but realization. God will make you holy because he has chosen you onto holiness, end quote. You have been called to holiness and God will make you holy. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Left to yourself, yes, you stand accused, but you have a greater savior, a greater power, a greater judge, a greater advocate who has plucked you from the fire by going through the ultimate fire for you. And then there are some of you here who are struggling because of the circumstances of your life. So again, I ask, What happens when life becomes too hard and you feel tired, you feel weak, and you feel like you just want to throw in the towel and give up? What do you do? This isn't something that is unique to the book of Zechariah. Job once wished out loud, let the day perish on which I was born. And then he wished it again, oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. As we all know, God denied this request from Job. In James chapter 5, verse 11, we read, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's not, you have heard the complaints of Job or the whining of Job. No, you've heard the steadfastness of Job and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So if you get anything out of Zechariah, it's that the Lord responds to our discouragement with compassion and mercy. In the first vision, when the angel of the Lord echoed the sentiment of the people of Judah begging for justice, 
crying out because of their discouragement. Chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. So to those who are in their own trial or in their own pain, I don't know what you're going through right now. And I don't know the meaning behind some of your tears when you're alone at night. But God knows. And God calls you to be steadfast by trusting in him. Not to suck it up, but to continue to cry out to God. Search the scriptures and know that regardless of your changing circumstances, regardless of the darkness that you feel, regardless of the helplessness you might feel, God is compassionate and merciful to you. It might not make sense today or even in your lifetime, but our God is not a random God. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood, faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. If you're a child of God and you've given yourself to him, he's not forgotten you. The Lord remembers. And finally, church, behold your king. The Jews look back on a legacy that once was, and their situation seemed bleak. And in some ways, the church today looks back on a legacy that once was. And sometimes, even in your own personal faith, it's hard to see a glorious future for the church or for yourself. But Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 tells us to behold your king. So, church, behold your king. Chapter 14, verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. He will be the undisputed, unanimous king. And if he is not king in your life today, you will be defeated with your idols. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11 declares, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if this is not what you look forward to, if this is not the thrust of your faith tonight, I don't know what is to see your king finally seated on his rightful throne and for his justice to finally reign forever and ever and for us to finally receive rest because he is resting. All of history, from the very first breath breathed into Adam to the final sunrise, every second of human history culminates to this point where Jesus is made the final and ultimate king. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Christ has come to execute judgment against his enemies for his own people, those who call him Lord and King. He comes in power to remove your sin and clothes you with clothes worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. He will, in the same power that we saw in Zechariah tonight, protect you and be your salvation. Let this Jesus be the king of your life. Let this Jesus be the one you worship for the rest of your life. Behold your king. Let's pray. Father God, you do not say, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you challenges. 
You do not say that you will give us rebuke. You tell us that you will give us rest. And so for your people, for your sake, for your glory, would you give us rest? And in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.